This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by Revitalist, yet another company that I've pursued to bring on the show as a sponsor because I know they truly have solutions to many of the problems that we face. Currently, there is a global pain and mental health pandemic that we are suffering through. For some people, traditional therapies are working, whether it's psychotherapy, whether it's even prescribed medication, but for many, many people, they are what's known as treatment resistant. The traditional roads are just not working for them, leaving them even more frustrated. You may have heard multiple times on this show, the Navy SEAL community, for example, having incredible success with Ibogaine and psilocybin, and in the UK, MDMA-led therapy. The problem is none of those are legal at the moment. The good news is the anesthesiology world discovered that ketamine, a drug that they use legally every day during surgeries, actually has incredible mental health and chronic pain applications as well. Now, on episode 559, I had Catherine Walker, a certified nurse anesthetist, who decided to start Revitalist after seeing the incredible results on chronic pain and mental health challenges. This rapidly expanding company is currently in nine locations spanning Knoxville, Tennessee, Detroit, Houston, Jacksonville, Florida, and beyond. And each facility offers low-dose ketamine therapy, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, TMS, vitamin infusions, and so much more. Now, to truly hear the full story behind this, go to episode 559 and listen to Catherine Walker's episode or go to revitalistclinic.com to learn more about the therapies they offer, their locations, and to reach out to them yourself.
Welcome to episode 589 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show a sister firefighter from Kenya, Flora Cassie. Now, we discuss a host of topics from Flora's own journey into the fire service, how many of the men and women in Kenya are fighting fires with little or no personal protective equipment whatsoever, what makes Kenyan athletes so incredible at endurance sports, domestic terrorism, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible international conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 600 episodes now. So all I ask is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on the globe who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Flora Cassie. Enjoy. Well, Flora, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you, too. It's quite a great opportunity for me, and I'm so excited about this. Well, me too. So I want to thank Milena for uh, connecting us as well. I mean, it was a total random message from her, and then here we are now, an Englishman in America talking to a Kenyan firefighter. <laughs> yeah, I can thank her enough, too, for this connection. So for people listening, obviously they can tell by your accent, you're probably not from Florida. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? All right. So my name is Flora Mwacheche. I'm a female firefighter in Kenya since six years. And I'm from the lower part of Kenya, that is the coastal Kenya in Kilifi County. Uh, Kilifi County is in the coastal Kenya. We are bordered by the Indian Ocean. And uh, we have a population of approximately 1,450,000. We have seven sub-counties in Kilifi. That is uh, Gande, Kaloleni, Kilifi North, Kilifi South, Magarini, Rabai, and Malindi sub-counties. Kilifi is well known for its beaches and the ruins that are from the 14th to 17th century. So I will say that um, the fire service is really needed here in Kilifi for the population of 1,450,000. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> now, <laughs> I have to say, so I, I did a little bit of research before we started talking. I put in Kilifi County and was amazed at my terrible knowledge of geography because I didn't realize that part of Kenya had beaches on there. So um, is Kalifi County um, a draw for tourism then, people from Africa going to the beach? Yeah, a lot. Actually, that is one of our most uh, tourist attractions in Kalifi County. We have a part in Kalifi County, it's called Watamu in Malindi. They call it a small Europe because a lot of tourists come in. Okay, beautiful. All right, and then you mentioned the ruins as well. So so what kind of culture were those ruins attributed to? What kind of tribes? Um, Muslim, Muslim. We have a lot of tombs and mosques. 
a lot of moss around, so we are surrounded with a lot of Muslims. And uh, yeah, that is way before in the 14th to the 17th century. Beautiful. Yeah, I'm learning all, all these things. So I would love to start at the very beginning of your your kind of chronological journey. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your parents and, and brothers and sisters, what, what they did. Of course, um, I'm born in a family of 13. That is my mom, my dad. I have nine sisters and one brother. So uh, I was born here in Kalifi County at a village called uh, Msabaha. It's just um, within the parameters of Malindi town, a few kilometers to the center. So I grew up uh, in Mombasa. And um, when I was 22, I decided to come back home in Kilifi County when I started uh, being in the fire department. So uh, the 11 of us, my nine sisters, uh, three have families, they are married, and then three are in the university. And then, and then two are in high school. My brother, he's working at sea. My mom and dad, they just at home looking at us. They have raised us so well to face the world. Uh, they have given us the confidence that we all have right now. And um, because we, obviously it happens in all families that you don't always get along. So we don't always get along, but uh, we are really bonded with a lot of love and support for one another in my family. So there are, the entire family right now, we live in Kilifi County, except for my brother who works at sea. So he oftenly comes home. And whereabouts is he? Is he, is he on a cruise ship or is he on a, a commercial vessel? No, he's in the cruise ship, in the Mediterranean cruise ship. Okay, beautiful. That's one of the best things about doing a cruise. I'm actually going on one um, just over a week's time. And it's such a, a beautiful, eclectic group of people from Indonesia and you know the Philippines and Kenya and all these different places. So if you take the time yeah. to ask the people that you're on the ship with, you get to learn a huge amount about the world. Okay. So what about your mom and dad? What, what, what occupations? What were they doing as jobs when they were raising you? Well, my mom was a housewife. He was a house manager, actually. And uh, my dad, he was a driver at some company, at some Indian company here in Mombasa until uh, 2008 when he was retired. So since 2008 till now, he hasn't had something fun to do just to look at us using his retirement benefits to keep us going. So they are trying their best to make ends meet. But here we are. We can't complain. Yeah. And we are so proud of them. Well, I only have two kids, so I can imagine how exhausted your parents must have been after 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a team of 11. Especially when almost all of you are ladies. 10 girls and one man. Oh, I got that wrong. 11. Even even bigger. All right. Um, so... Uh, when you were at a younger age, what sports were you playing? Yeah, when I was growing up, I really grew up to be a teacher. That was my greatest dream. I just wanted to be a teacher. Teaching was in me. I would even uh, collect my village, uh, my community members, kids, you know, try to teach them, you know, exercising what I really wanted to do. So being a teacher was really my desire. And I'm glad even if I am not a teacher right now, I can use that to be 
teaching some of the things in the fire department. Brilliant. Now, were you playing any sports, doing any athletics or anything like that? Yeah, football. I did play football when I was in primary school, when I was in when I was six until I was uh, fourteen. When I went to high school, I never took any games. I just wanted to concentrate. So I left when I was fourteen. Now and I, I don't have oh. that interest anymore. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, so we were obviously going to talk about um, you know, equality when it comes to the fire service as well. Sports is another area where you tend to see disparities, you know, the differences between men and women. What about yeah. football in, in Kenya? Is that something that's viewed as equal or is it more a male bias or female bias? No, it's equal. Both, uh, both, both, both genders take a lot of interest in sports and uh, it's been uh, so equal. Not that it's just men or just women. It's both genders. Excellent. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, one speaking of athletics for a second, one thing that fascinates me is when you think of Kenya in the sporting world, you think of distance runners and marathon runners. Um, what is it that makes Kenyan men and women so, so good at that event? Wow. <laughs> yeah, because uh, this is the home of champions. And um, uh, in Kenya, those who take interest in athletes mostly – there are those people who've been living in those parameters where, first of all, you have to walk very long distances to get some services. So it naturally becomes, you know, part of your life. Like, for instance, if I had to walk three or five kilometers, 10 kilometers to school, or if I have to walk uh, 20 kilometers to find a hospital or so, so the distance between where we stay to where we can find uh, these um, uh, daily life services is what is building us. We become naturally, you know, it becomes so natural that um, we are born with it and we are growing up with it. So it's just natural for Kenya. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear because I think now in England and the UK and some other places, like, excuse me, in America and the UK, you know, we, we have the opposite where we don't even walk anymore. You know, a lot of, a lot of places they'll, they'll get in the car, they'll drive to the grocery store, they'll drive through their dry cleaners and their library and, you know, all these things and they're barely ever even leaving their vehicle. And it, wow. you see the, the poor health that comes out of that, the bad health. And then you see, cultures where they still have to walk or run as part of their daily life you tend to find a lot healthier people there <laughs> wow so how would you describe the the um the health of the kenyan people at the moment then have you seen um as we have in the west when when cars and, and fast food and things like that came in, uh, we saw our health get worse. As a nation, is, is, Hen is Kenya still a healthy nation or have you had some of those negative inputs as well? Well, not that 100% healthy. Uh, there are parts where we don't have to see these uh, uh, unhealthy foods like the, the, the fast foods. There are areas where they, we don't even know that such kind of foods exist. So I will say that a better part of Kenya is so healthy. Yeah, when it comes to that. Yeah. So with that being said, this last two years, obviously the whole, the whole world has been exposed to the COVID virus. 
what was your experience in um, in your county for this last two years? Was it very, very bad in Kenya? Was it actually not that bad? Was it somewhere in the middle? Very, very bad. It was a very bad experience, uh, especially family-wise. A better part of my family had lost their jobs because they are in the hotel industry and then tourism was no longer there. So... It's only, I will say, in the 11 of us, only I was working at that moment because I am a first responder, but uh, a better part of my family, even the extended family, they had lost their jobs. Um, my sisters, my three sisters, they discontinued their education because learning was also closed until one year later. So it was a terrible experience for us. And... Uh, you can find uh, finding out that I was the only breadwinner at that moment uh, for almost a year. So for me, that is that was a very terrible experience. I wouldn't want us to go back to that. No, well, I think that's a powerful perspective too. I mean, it was it was a you know, is a horrible virus that affects some people very poorly, but I think the impact of all the lockdowns and shutdowns and isolations has had an equal, if not greater, negative impact than the virus itself. So um, having to deal with COVID was a nightmare for us. Thank God that now things are slowly coming back to normalities, and we pray that it continues to be so. And uh, actually, we had a barrage to of my family members out of COVID, so... We don't want to dream about it any longer. No, absolutely okay. not. So, yeah. well, speaking of the fire service then, so you dreamed of being a teacher. Kind of walk me through your journey to, to university and then how did you find yourself changing careers to the fire service? Yeah. why? Well, the reason I wanted to be a teacher actually was my passion for humanity. Humanity was too much in me that I felt that the only way I could maybe do this was being a teacher, like enlightening the world through educating them, uh, bringing up, you know, all those barriers through my teaching. So it was all about human humanitarian, uh, humanitarian work. So fire service is not something that is oftenly being talk, talked about here in Kenya and uh, it is not a career it is not a career path that uh, everybody knows so i never knew that there was something to do with the fire service until i was 20 when i came to learn about the fire department Actually, I never went to the university for teaching. I had registered, I had gotten my admission, and I was already wanting to start. But because of financial constraints, and we had a lot of us at home, everybody has to go to high school, high school first. So financial constraints dragged me behind, but I can say that was a blessing in disguise because if I went to the university for, for teaching, I wouldn't be here right now talking to you as a firefighter. So not being able to go to the university because of financial constraints for me right now, it was a blessing in this in disguise. So when I came to learn about the fire service, I said, okay, so it's not about being
being a teacher any longer. So this is actually where my humanitarian passion can take me through. And the rest is history. When I was 20, I got to learn about this fire department to a friend here in my county. And they say, you know, there's this department. It's not that, you know, it's not being openly talking about, but I feel like it's what, it's your, it's your line, it's your line about humanity. Maybe you come and try. And before that, uh, when I left high school, in two years, I had worked with an NGO, a non-governmental organization, that its aim was about uh, community work. So I had worked with the community a lot, even when I had not studied it, but I, I believe when you have a passion for something, you don't have to go through school. It automatically becomes you know, your, 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 your job, your thing. So I had worked with uh, an NGO called PACS, Private Agencies Collaborating Inc., and uh, we had aid from the uh, United States USAID. So having worked with that NGO drew me closer to this fire department. So it is the same people that I was working with in the community that came and told me, okay, I think there's something you need to know. There's a fire uh, department some, somewhere in Kilifi County and they're looking for persons to recruit. I say, but I'm a lady, I say, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> because it was something I had never dreamt about in my life, I took that courage to say, let me try this, actually. So, I went to consult my parents about it, and the rest is history. Here I am today. Beautiful. Well, before we get in, as you said, you know, but I'm a woman. So, culturally in Kenya, you know, the last, let's say, 10 years, Again, how how are women perceived? Is is there a general equality between men and women, or is there a, a slight gender bias still? No, a slight gender bias, especially in my community. Like I will tell you that um, even this fire service is believed to be a man's profession. Yeah, they only want to see a lady in you know in a in a fire pants. You know, they believe yeah, we are so cultured. We're just too cultured. To, to, to be discriminated as female to doing uh, particular jobs. Like for instance, I told you when I wanted to join this department and I was consulting my parents, they asked me to literally shake my head. They want to see if I'm okay upstairs. Why? <laughs> because they believe, <laughs> yeah, because they believe that this is a man's profession actually. This is, this is something you cannot do, Flora. And I said, no, this is what I am choosing to do. So it was upon me to pick up myself, to prove myself to them. And that is how it has been always. As females, we have to prove ourselves over and over again. So culture-wise, I think we are still being discriminated to doing particular jobs as female, especially in my community. Now, just before we get into the fire services, we kind of touched on before I start recording, there are, you know, some... There's some traditions in every single culture, if you go back, that are just don't make any sense at all. And I think something that, you know, you've got there in Kenya in certain pockets is the female genital mutilation. So again, men dictating what happens to a young woman's body. So talk to me about that and, and, and the push against getting getting that removed from, from those cultures. Yeah, we have we have been speaking out as women against the gender-based violence and the female genital mutilation. 
because this happens mostly in the northern part of Kenya. And there, these are our sisters, these are our mothers, these are our people. So they are having different initiatives that um, are, being are being carried out to stop this kind of activities. And um, we have been protesting, we have, uh, we, we have had a lot of initiatives so to, to see that uh, we are being treated equally as female and such activities that are inhuman are being stopped for, for females. I had a friend we met who spearheads an, an initiative in the northern part of Kenya. It is called uh, Mokogodo Girls Empowerment Project that mainly focuses on, the, on stopping uh, the female genital mutilation. I wouldn't talk much about it because I'm from the lower coast of Kenya, but uh, I have taken part personally twice against these activities when I used to work with the community in the NGO. So a lot of initiatives are being, are being put into place to make sure that these activities are being stopped completely. Right now they are on the decrease, but they have not yet completely stopped. But I believe when these initiatives are continued, maybe someday we are going to stop these awkward or primitive cultures, I would say. Absolutely. No, I mean, like I said, it's something that we're aware of. I think they refer to it as female circumcision, is that right? But it's not done surgically. So it's, it's a pretty brutal process from what I understand. Yeah. They wanted to put it as a choice, but then we don't want it to be a choice. It should be completely stopped. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, then you mentioned as well the Kenya eclectic mix of, of backgrounds. You said you have different religions in Kenya. Um, when, the, for example, in the West here, when we have that, occasionally you get extremists that um, you know create violence and terrorism within the country. The Nairobi Westgate attack was obviously one that that made the news here. Um, as a first responder, what are, what are the threats when it comes to domestic terrorism like we have here in the UK and in America and other countries around the world? Wow. I don't even want to speak about Nairobi because that, that is so far, but it happens even to our neighboring county here. It is called the Lamu County, where these activities have been taking place, a lot of terrorists coming in. And, um, wow, these events for first responders are just, um, they're too horrible or, or, or they're, they're, they're nightmares for responders to respond. Number one, because of the fear. You don't know if you're going to get there or you go, you're going to get out alive or not. You're not, you're not so sure if you're going back home because um, on the issue of West gets when the first responders were there, they literally were doing that job with a lot of fear. With a lot, yeah, with a lot of fear that they're not going to go back home. So when I heard of some terrorism um, just in my neighboring county here in Lamu County, because we are bordered by Tana River and Lamu counties to the north. So terrorism has also been a lot because of this. Um, religion impacts, but uh, though I personally have never responded to, but those who have responded have difficult stories to tell. And I wouldn't personally want to be 
a part of it. I don't know if in the UK or in the US you you have personally done this, but I wouldn't want to be a part of it. I wouldn't want these activities to take place actually, not in my county. Yeah, no, it's absolutely horrendous. And that's the thing. I mean, you, you look at the Westgate shooting, for example, and you know the the horrendous scene that must have been inside and then we're talking obviously about personal protective equipment in, in your fire service well that extends far beyond that to mental health you know, yeah, I mean, how they, do- yeah 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 we could watch from afar that they even were responding uh without um the the, the, the sbs they were just there or somebody only with a jacket with a fire jacket no boots no 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 helmet or somebody does have a helmet but no 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 proper ppe actually nobody has had a proper ppe to attend to an event in the entire country yeah, exactly I mean, that, and that's the point you know i mean it's we're very, very blessed here, especially in America, to be given pretty much all the tools. And there, there are some areas, it's funny, you sent me a picture of your station that reminds me of some of the stations I've worked in. So we have beautiful fire stations and we have awful fire stations, um, you know, and, and <laughs> your one was certainly better than some of the ones that I've been in. But that being said, overall, we're very, very lucky that, you know, our health and safety is prioritized and we do have air packs and we do have, you know, nitrile gloves and all these things that will protect us from from fire and disease but when I saw some of like the training video that you sent me and obviously some of the news footage from, from Westgate, for example, you see, you know, what happens when, when you send men and women like yourself in without the protection that we're used to in the West. I mean, it, it's, it, it kind of jolts you. You're like, Oh my goodness. You know, how, how are you going to respond with so few, you know, barriers to you getting shot, you getting, you know, covered in, in blood? And yeah, I mean, so it's a, it's a very different kind of, uh, threat level to you in Kenya than it is here in, in America, for example. Yeah. yeah. We envy you, actually. <laughs> I can imagine. So so we're going to talk about that now. So firstly, tell me about the um, the fire department that you work for. Right? What what kind of incidences are you, you normally responding to? Yeah. Um, First of all, the, in the entire county where we have seven sub-counties, we have only four fire stations. And in every fire station, we have only one fire truck. And uh, the distance between one fire station to the other is about 70 kilometers. And um, we, 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 we really, you know, 70 kilometers from one station to the other. So we rarely meet as a station because number one, even our fire engines make are from China or Sino trucks, 10,000 liter capacity, but they are worn out. And um, so they require, they, they, they frequently require a lot of services, maintenance services, and um, a lot of breakdowns. They often break down because they are too worn out. So the fires that we actually respond to here are structural fires a lot. I'll say 80% of the incidences that we respond to are structural fires. We also have wildland fires. They happen in a season, especially when it is dry between March and April. 
So that is when we experience wildland fires. And then we also have industrial fires because we have a lot of industries coming up and um, we have been responding to industrial fires or glades. So in every station's personnel, we are 68 firefighters in the entire county. And in every station, there is about 18 firefighters and uh, six firefighters per crew. So in one crew, we are the, uh, in every crew, there are six people. And uh, out of the 68 personnel, only nine are female. And uh, they are distributed in, uh, as in two female per station. So in every crew, there will be one or zero female. So like in my crew, I'm the only female. And in my station, I'm also the only female. So we respond to a lot of structural fires. I personally have gone to 76 structural fires so far and 26 bushfires. Uh, the wildland fires here, we call them bushfires because they are not that immense. We don't have those huge forests. So we refer to them as the bushfires. So a lot of structural fires and um, industrial fires, I would say. Now, how many, how many hours are you at the fire station and how many days a week do you do that? Um, our shifts are divided into three. When one shift is uh, on the daily routes, the other shift will come in at night while the other shift is on off duty. So I'll stay in the station for 12 hours before the next shift comes in. But um, we recently found out that this was not favoring most of us because of the distance. So we changed, we recently changed our shifts for uh, the station uh, in two. So instead of three shifts, we currently have two shifts. The one shift will work for an entire week before they can go for off. And then the other shift comes again. The other shift comes in for another week and then you go off one week. Because um, the distance does not favor us for us to be coming to the stations daily and going back home and then you know, coming to a night shift, going back home in the morning, we just rest for two days and coming back. So we thought that we could come up with an idea where it will favor all firefighters. So we divided the shift. Instead of three, we recently have divided the shift only into two. So we have nine members in every shift where we work in an entire week before we go home, day and night, 24 hours. And do you find yourself going on calls a lot at nighttime? Yes. Yeah. Structural right. and industrial. So, yeah. so by the end of those seven days, you must be pretty tired. Very. <laughs> <laughs> now, what about the paramedic side? Who's the, the EMS? Um, who's delivering EMS in Kenya in your county? No, we, we, we have a little knowledge because we were trained on the basic uh, first aid. But uh, unfortunately, we don't have an ambulance. We don't have an. Uh, we don't have a first aid kit. So it's quite a pity that we cannot um, exercise those duties, even as first responders, regardless of how knowledgeable we are. Yeah, because having the knowledge is one thing, and having the equipment is another thing. 
So we don't even have a first aid kit at the station. We don't have any medical equipment, so we cannot exercise that, although it is really, really needed. So who, who are the ambulances in Khalifi County then? Who, is that from the hospital or is it a different organization? Yeah, from the hospital. Uh, it's managed by the county government. So anytime we will, there will be a scene that um, medical services are required, we will call the ambulances from the hospitals or from the government. But as a department, as a fire section, we don't have any. Right. Well, you're making a lot of Western firefighters very jealous right now because we would, would love to go to 80% fires. <laughs> we go to about 90% medical calls if we're honest with ourselves. So, <laughs> wow. yeah, it's very different here. So with, again, the PPE element then. So you, you have a Chinese, you know, fire engine, fire truck assigned to each station, which may or may not work that day. Um, yeah. What about the PPE? What what protection does each firefighter have at the moment? Wow. In the history of my fire service in this county, in 23 years in the history of Kilifi County Fire and Rescue, we never had any PPEs. We have gone to fires with only a helmet. In the, in the six years of my service, five years, I have gone to fires only putting on a helmet. Until in 2020, in early 2020, where we got a slight donation from Africa Fire Mission and uh, the European support team. They supported us with, uh, with, with equipment and the PPE. Although not enough for everybody, but um, at least it made a difference because now I'll put on a fire jacket, I'll put on the pants, the boots, the helmet, and also they had brought in the, self, uh, the self-contained breathing apparatus, but unfortunately we cannot use them because we don't have a compressor for refilling them. So as much as we have them and not enough, but we cannot use them because we don't have a compressor. So currently we say thank you to Africa Fire Mission for the slight PPE that they gave us and for the European support team for supporting us with that donation. So still not enough for all 68 firefighters and um, the compressor for refilling the, 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 the breathing apparatus is making us not use the BS that were donated to us yet. So if people wanted to help, what would be the best way of contributing to get a compressor for Khalifi County Fire? The best way. I believe every way will be the best way when you need something. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, would, the, would uh, the African Fire Mission, for example, was that would that be something that they would be able to help put in or would it be... I'm just wondering how, you know, we would be able to contribute to maybe assist in getting more PPE or even a compressor. Yeah, I think that should be, um, I think that should be made maybe directly to the county government of Kilifi. Yeah, because those are our employers and they will know the best way how. Yeah, well, I wonder as well how expensive it is to get a compressor in in. Kenya because obviously in the US I mean we have them in all the fire stations so this is probably a lot cheaper here because so many are needed I wonder how many yeah. people are making compressors in in Africa or in Kenya specifically 
it has been our question too. But I believe that there should be somewhere. Now, with Nairobi being the capital, does their department have a higher level of equipment than, than you guys do? Not really. Not really. I think uh, we are suffering the same fate as Kenyan, the entire Kenyan fire brigade. So Nairobi will just be a name because it is a city. But when it comes to the fire department, we all suffer the same fate. So you mentioned about um, being just nine female firefighters in your department at the moment. Um, talk to me about the struggles, the challenges of female firefighters at the moment, and then and then what needs to change to to raise women up to to be viewed as the same as men in the department. Yeah. So um, female firefighters. We have a lot of challenges as female firefighters, especially in the fact that we have to prove ourselves in everything. I can remember in the first week of my service and there was an incident and we went to respond and uh, the members of the public like, what, there's a woman? No, let us see, let us see what she can do. Why are you giving this such, such kind of jobs to women? So. In that incident, you really have to prove, you know, you have to show the world that, okay, I'm not here by chance. I'm here because I can do this. So everybody's like, we want the woman, we want the female to act. We want the female to act. So the fact that you have to prove yourself in everything. And actually being female is uh, so much associated with family. So you can imagine going to the event to an incident and then you don't have the proper PPE and then all those toxics in your bodies and then you are a family, you are a family woman, you go back home, you have to feed your family, you have to do this and this for your family. So you are extending everything back at home. So I feel like uh, as females, we really, really need to be looked into with regards to uh, proper PPEs, with regards to proper trainings, especially proper trainings, you know, advanced trainings for female firefighters, so that we are not just doing this job because we are here. We are doing this because we can do this. So I've had a lot of initiatives about female firefighters because um, I wanted, I wanted that in the near future, the fire service will be looked like um, it's a female dominant service. It's no longer going to be an all men's club. So what I currently do is um, I have a project, it's called Female Firefighters Rock. Uh, this project is aimed at supporting female firefighters. Uh, this project is aimed at imparting confidence in female firefighters and uh, to show the world that this is, an, uh, even female can be in this profession. They can do it and they can do it very well. So through this uh, project, I aim at uh, supporting uh, little girls, you know, educating them, uh, taking them through the, 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 this career path, that it is also a career because it is not oftenly talking about. So I teach them about fire safety. My main concern is about the little girls so that they will grow up wanting to be firefighters. Yeah. I don't want somebody who grew up to be a doctor to find themselves in the, you know, in the fire department. So I wanted to be born from, you know, from the youngest age. 
So I teach them about fire safety from that age. Uh, we have uh, firefighting clubs in schools, where especially in the girls' schools, where we, 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 we teach them as first responders so that they can help during emergencies in their schools before the, the first responders can go too. So we have uh, these initiatives that are currently going on, um, the firefighting clubs, and we are also doing a lot of fire safety awareness campaigns, especially to the girls within my community. I also look at uh, the female who have been affected with fires, you know, giving them the hope, the courage, you know, and also enlightening them about fire prevention. So apart from these doing the, uh, on females, there is a bigger, a larger project about the fire safety awareness campaign that uh, was uh, born uh, through our station officer then, his name is Kahindi Sal. So he brought us together one time and said, you know, we already do not, having improper PPE is already one thing, but what are these things that we can still do aside all these challenges? Do you think that there's something that we can do as firefighters, even with all these challenges? So he has taught us to, he has taught us to make chances out of these challenges that we have. So uh, we, we, we started fire safety awareness campaigns so that uh, we will reduce uh, these fire incidences because people will now be uh, knowledgeable about fire safety. We started going to schools, almost every school, school in my county has had that program so far. Uh, we went even to doing road shows on the show. We, we, on the road, we pack our fire engine and we start our and we start our, our, our gospel of fire safety. We go to churches, you know, every opportunity that we will get, we will do this. So he really taught us to make, uh, to make chances out of these challenges. And since this program, it is the program that pushed me now as a female, I thought, okay, if we can do this to the entire community, I believe this is going to impact a lot on the girl child, on the side of a child, of, of a girl child. So I drew that strength from there. I drew that strength from there and started a side project just for females. Even though we, 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 we teach the entire community about fire prevention, fire safety and all that, but I wanted it particularly, yeah, for the girl child. So that the girl child can also be growing, wanting to be a firefighter. And right now, I can say it is so successful because when you go to a school right now and you ask, what do you want to become? Everybody will like, I want to be a firefighter. Like 50%. That was <laughs> never there. Yeah, that was never there. Yeah. So I'm so glad that even despite these challenges, I think there are chances that you can make out of them. There are messages that you can make out of a mess. So I, I feel proud of myself to, 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 to bring this gospel out there for the, to, for the girl child to wanting to become a future firefighter. And I believe, and it is my dream, that someday when I start my volunteer fire department, it will be a female-dominant service. Beautiful. Well, that's so good to hear for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I love the philosophy you said one of your colleagues had, which was, 
it is what it is as far as our PPE at the moment. So how can we improve everything that we can control? And I think that's such a great way of looking at it. And what you did with your community, with the boys and the girls, the mentorship, I think, you know, so many problems that we see, if we can address the children, we can then shape them to become kind, compassionate, courageous adults. And, you know, I talk about this a lot here where, where there are communities that aren't dreaming of being firefighters because they don't believe us what, you know, they're capable of doing. They don't see firefighters that look or sound like them in their community. So by going in and mentoring exactly what you, you're talking about, you end up bringing those, you know, boys and girls up that want to be, you know, firefighters. So I think addressing our children, whether it's teaching them the way they eat, teaching them how to exercise, you know, and, and be fit and then inspiring them to be in careers that, that are needed and that they would love. You know, I think it's, it's incredible. I really do. Yeah. And we also have a junior firefighters club. We formed a junior firefighters club way back in 2019. And uh, we have kids that um, we are raising in the in the parameters of the fire fire section so every weekend we have we have, we have them when they are on holidays we have them uh when they are you know when they are from school and it is early we still have them so this junior firefighting club that we have we have uh, children ranging from the age of four all the way to teenagers aging 16. uh we divided them into group the the, the very young ones and the teenagers so the young ones We'll teach them uh, on uh, fire safety, stop, drop, and roll, you know, what you do in the event of a fire. And then the teenagers, will, we teach them the real, the real thing, the real firefighting act and everything else. So we are all already molding a community that is going to help us even in incidences because there are some incidences even we take them along with us because we have permission from their parents. So we are already molding a community, a team of community firefighters. So these junior firefighting clubs, although we have, because some things, a lot of things, they're being run by finances. So sometimes it becomes a little bit difficult for us to be hosting them because when they come, okay, especially for holidays, when we want to have them for holidays and they are here, we are having them maybe for three weeks, four weeks. They need to feed, they need to wash and do all those sorts of things. So we really plan in advance how we're going to do this. Okay, let's make a little donations. We donate and they come in. Sometimes when we can't, we just let them be at home. But we are glad that we are molding these guys, young boys and girls, already to be... They are already community firefighters as, as at now. We have a team of 45, 20 females and 25 male. 20 are under the age of 10 and then 25 are beyond 10. So it is a Califi County Junior Firefighters Club. That's amazing. It really is. And it's funny because, you know, with, with the little resources that you have, you're applying this, this mentorship in the community that I think is so needed by very, very affluent fire departments here in, in America, for example. So you and your peers didn't look at, oh, we don't have all this stuff, all this funding, so therefore we can't do it. You figured out a way to still do it, despite the fact you don't have the, the supplies or the money. Well, speaking of PPE as well, you know, there's a couple of things I want to ask because we, we have all this great equipment and yet we still 
lose a lot of firefighters from from a host of diseases and mental health and things like that. So what is the longevity of a of a Kenyan firefighter? Are you guys without this PPE or anything? Are you seeing, you know, cancers and other things taking your your fellow brothers and sisters? So far we have not had any case of cancer, but uh we have had cases of skin problems. A lot of cases are actually of skin and chest problems. But so far, we have never had any case of cancer. Um, there are fires that um, we go to, especially the industrial fires, and we don't, we, we, we don't have any knowledge on hazmats. So we really don't know what is in there, the chemicals that are involved and so forth. So there was this time when an entire crew suffered I am being among them, suffered a serious skin damage because we really didn't know what chemicals were in there and we were just there just only with helmets and probably with boots. That time we didn't have any PPEs. So we drastically suffered on uh, injuries, uh, on skin injuries, burns and all that. So we were forced to medicate three to four weeks before we were fully recovered. So all those pains are there, but uh, for cancer, particularly cancer, we have not had a case so far. So with that being said, how prevalent is cancer in Kenya in general? Is it something that, that you see a lot? Because the thing that is curious, as you mentioned about you having overall a very healthy population, I truly believe that a lot of our cancers come from the chemicals in our food and you know water and things like that in the West. So Kenya overall, is there a lot of cancer in, in the, the regular population? Not a lot that would... Um... Not to not not a lot that will uh, create an uh, I don't know, but not really, not really. Oh, that's that's great to hear. I mean, it really is. I mean, you know, there's probably a lot to do again with with the way the way you eat, the way you exercise, as creating healthy firefighters. That even you go to these these pretty awful fires and still you know manage to to escape a lot of those diseases. So what about the mental health side? Again, in the West, you know, we, we're suffering a lot from suicide, from drug addiction. What are you seeing there in, in Kenya in general? And then are you seeing any any less or worse in the, in the fire service? Yeah, we have a lot of mental health problems. I personally took my life at some point. I will speak that from my own perspective um, because... In the entire Kenya, generally, we are suffering uh, a lot from PSTD, post-traumatic stress disorder, because uh, some incidences are just too traumatic. Yeah, you go to an incident and then because we don't have a, a, a proper equipment to do the job, and then you fail. And then you fail doing a job seeing somebody losing their lives when you are even there. So it is just too, too, it's just too much to take. There's an incident in early 2020 where we went as a, as a Kilifi County firefighters where a lady had, a lady had uh, <coughs> gotten into a 60 feet pit. And then we were there on time. The lady was there, we could even hear the screams you know, from inside, but the pit is confined. 
So we get there when this lady is already alive. We have all the time to save her. But do we have the right equipment to do the job? No. So, in fact, because it was a lady, I was feeling that I really needed to do this because I am not taking it from that woman's perspective. I don't want to see a fellow woman just die right before me when I can offer the help. So the pit was too confined. We tried all we could, but we pulled in because somebody goes in, you know, a few feet and they already can't breathe. We don't have the breathing apparatus. So they raise the alarm and we get them out. The lady is screaming down there, still crying for help. Another person tries to go in. A few feet, they scream that they already cannot breathe anymore. So they can't, you know, we get them out. So can you imagine that trauma of hearing that lady screaming for help until you could not hear her anymore. Two hours, four hours, six hours, until an entire day, an entire night. So it is really traumatizing sometimes. I felt that we had failed terribly. terribly. I felt that we had killed this lady. I felt that it was our fault. But how is it our fault? We don't have the right equipment to do the job. If only we had breathing apparatus, maybe we could be talking to the lady right now, but two hours became six hours, 12 hours, and then an entire day until two days when actually the job was getting done. So we got there right on time, but we failed, terrible crowd. So I've been living with this like it was our fault. We killed this lady. So it is there. And it's, I, I, I believe it is not only here in my county. It is the entire Kenya. And um, we really thank Africa Fire Mission. They have been having this online training. Sometimes they really do talk about uh, the stress management in the department. And we are really getting along. It's so difficult to do, but we are here. I personally have gone through it a lot. Yeah, well, I can yes. I can see exactly why you'd be feeling the way you did. And you're right, it's not your fault, but you're still going to carry the guilt and shame from what I call the inability to save. It's what, what was the hardest thing in my career as a firefighter and a paramedic is – doing everything right and them still not dying. But I can't imagine going there and not having the equipment to do everything right. And it reminds me, there was a a film that was made a few years ago about the fire service and they had career, like paid, you know, firefighters. They had paid on call that would come, you know, just when they were needed and they had volunteers. And this one guy, I think was a paid on call. He had this beautiful fire in a ladder truck, the, the fire truck. And they he went, but he was the only one assigned i think he was paid and the others are all volunteers he went to this house fire and there were electrical wires everywhere so even though he had the equipment he wasn't able to put the equipment up and you know he talks about this one lady basically threw her her baby out the window and it was killed when it hit the floor because she was burning to death up there so and that was in the I think the 1980s and the film was made a, a few years ago and he's still crying recalling that so i know exactly what you're talking about and i think that's just unacceptable that 
all it would have taken was the right gear and you would have been able to save save that woman or you know the chances would have been a lot higher so if people listening if we can help you know contribute then you know it, even if it's a rope you know whatever it is it's something that can start adding to your inventory and and making your ability to perform rescues better because I can only imagine the mental health impact of going to a fire, for example, knowing there's a, chi- a child alive in the back bedroom, but you can't get to them because you don't have the equipment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think uh, even aside the equipment, we also really need more advanced trainings, more advanced trainings to do the job. Because even having the equipment is one thing and having the knowledge on how to use it is another thing. I'll tell you, like, uh, we received an extrication equipment by the European support team. But uh, sadly, we don't have any knowledge on how to, to use them. So even when we attend to, to the scene of accidents, because even accidents are not rare, they are there often we oftenly respond to road traffic accidents, but are we able to use that equipment? No, we have it, but we don't have the knowledge. We don't have the know-how. So even more advanced training for firefighters here is really a, a need, an urgent need actually. Uh, yeah, because um, we really feel that we need more and more trainings. Yeah, well, it's heartbreaking. All the money that was thrown into the the COVID, you know, pandemic. Imagine all the money that could have been sent to departments like you that have would have saved lives for for years and years and years. And I agree with you. The training. I mean, if if a compressor magically appeared now, well, beautiful. You can fill SCBA tanks. But having never had air packs before, there's a whole training that goes into that. And, and in theory, giving the compressor with no training could probably cause more firefighters to die because they go into a fire and they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think uh, on the training part, apart from the, 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 the training, the, 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 the BA training, we actually had uh, our first BA training ever in November 2021. And not all of us are trained. Only out of 68, only 28 of us were trained last year on how to use the SCBS. And um, they're still not enough for everybody. And uh, because we don't have the compressor too, we cannot use it. So the trainings, we really need trainings on the SCBA. We really need trainings on hazmat because of the industries around us. So we really feel that hazmat is um, is a priority too. We also need a training on wildland firefighting because um, we attend to these uh, fires with just the knowledge on using beaters. Sometimes we just have to use water from the truck. But I believe that there are some more ways on how we can tackle such fires. So even wildland firefighting, if we got uh, more trainings on it, it will be great. And because we are bordered by the ocean, also we respond a lot to um, water incidents and we don't have proper water rescue uh, training. So even water rescue training, is uh, is needed as a matter of urgency and um, extrication also and maybe even ladders 
those are our key areas, right? Considering our areas where we have uh, the sea, the structural fires, the industrial fires, and the, uh, and the short or small forests that we have to respond to wildland fires ultimately. As much as we never had. Now, what about online training? Obviously, it's it's not ideal. The best thing is to have your hands-on equipment and have someone in front of you. But are you and your your fellow firefighters able to access online training if people listening had classes that they could send for you to access? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Beautiful. So for people listening, that's one option as well. And then the uh, Africa Fire Mission, is that probably the best place to donate to try and get you guys PPE at least? Yeah, I was um, thinking because um, even the European support uh, team equipment, it just came directly to the county government of Kilifi, and it took the shortest time possible to be cleared from the ports because of the relations we have with the ports of Mombasa. So if they came direct to Kilifi County government, I think it will be better, even though Africa Fire Mission will also be. Okay. So you said that was the European support team. That was the name of it? European support team? The European Fire Rescue Support Team, they are from Germany. Okay. Fire Rescue Support. Beautiful. All right. Well, Flora, I'd love to ask some closing questions so I can let you go. The first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend to people? It can be discussing what we've discussed today or something completely different. Yeah, a book. Yes. I have read Firefighter First and Foremost by Lindsay. Okay. Firefighter First and Foremost. Brilliant. Okay, yeah. what about a, um, a a movie or a documentary? Any of those that you like, films? <laughs> yeah, for the movie, I'll recommend Station 19. <laughs> Station 19? Yeah. I'll watch that one every time. <laughs> All right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Does it necessarily have to be a first responder? No, it can be anyone on planet Earth or outside the planet if you know aliens. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow, 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 um, Tina. Tina Jill. I may not know this lady in person, but she has been inspiring me a lot. She's actually the only female I know as a cancer survivor so far. I draw, uh, and she is, um, I think she's the founder of the Triple F um, Foundation, the female, the, uh, the, the fierce female firefighters group. We are all women as first responders. We come meet, we get, we encourage one another, we support one another. And um, through this lady, it is through Tina actually who invited me to this group that has made me uh, never wanting to give up. There are a lot of instances where I have wanted to give up as a firefighter. But every time I check into this group and I see all these amazing women doing all these amazing things, encouraging us never to give up. 
I really draw a lot of strength and I stand up again. I rise as if I, I, I was not the one who wanted to, you know, to quit. So, yeah, I would recommend her. Beautiful. And, I, and this is just a, an amazing moment as well. We, we hear a lot about the negativity on social media, on the internet, you know, how it can be used to, to be mean and, you know, to spread hate. But at the same time, here we are doing an interview, and this is because you connected with all these international female firefighter groups. So this is a beautiful moment of showing that technology can be incredible if you use it correctly. It's great. I think um, the social social media is one of the greatest tools that we can get to connect to the world. I myself would have given up a long time ago if it were not for the social media platforms that I'm in right now. So it is even through the social media that we're going to know all these uh, beautiful uh, organizations that are coming to support us, the peer, the, 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 the European support team, the Triple F Foundation. And uh, I feel like, yeah, social media, great. There's nothing awkward or negative. I'll speak about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's how you use it, you know, and that's the thing. It should be of used course. to do good. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, then the last then, question. Oh, I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah. Yeah, um, I don't know. We, I don't know about the fire stations there. I showed you one of our fire stations, how they look like. Like uh, in a fire station, it's just a three-room house. So we use the rooms as our boarding rooms. We sleep there. The rooms are the same room is our kitchen. The same room is, you know, is our control room. The same room is an office, a store, and everything else. So. I don't know. Do you think that uh, even if it is there, how are they? How are you guys taking it out there? Because we feel like this is too much for us to be like living in a store, in a kitchen, in a bedroom, in a you know, in a same all under. We call it all under one roof. Yeah. No, I think I mean definitely. If you're gonna live together for a week then absolutely there's, there's there's a need probably for for your own areas and i think that the best fire stations that i've seen in in america now are the ones where the kitchen is communal everyone that sits there you know the 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 in an office for example people can go there but the bedrooms are separate especially if you've got men and women obviously in in, in the same fire station so but the the problem with that is if you have those spaces and you don't foster the community you don't get everyone to come out sometimes they'll stay in their bedroom and you never see someone which is the the other side the worst side but yeah i mean if 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 you've got a fire station where you're on top of each other for a week i can see how that would also create tension <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <of course. laughs> okay. all right well then so speaking of that um the last question before we make sure people know how to reach out to you. What do you do to decompress? How do you relax when you're not firefighting? I think um, I've involved myself too much into firefighting that now all my life is about this firewall. That even my family will tell us, can you for a minute, you know, stop about this fire thing? We are tired. <laughs> Because, because when I'm not at 
depression, you know. I'm not on jury, but I'm home. I just want to give them fire tips. I want to talk everything, fire, fire, fire. But uh, one of the most things that I really love the most is uh, traveling, getting to know, you know, getting to socialize and knowing uh, other cultures, other communities, how other communities live, you know, how they get to live. Like I created my own trip in 2020. I have saved up a lot and I really needed to know what are really, what are these other African fire departments really doing? I wanted to draw um, a lot to help with my project. So I packed my bags and I went to Tanzania, I went to Malawi and I went to Zambia. And this was not just a leisure trip. This was a trip wanting to get to familiarize with the fire departments there. So my traveling, my life of traveling is just wanting to know, you know, how are the fire departments out here at? Are we too horrible or are we better? So I've been, I've seen the fire department in Tanzania, I've seen the fire department in Zambia, and I've seen the fire department in Malawi. I also got an opportunity to travel to Ghana for a women's conference in uh, August last year, and I visited the Ghana fire department there. So all my travels, I just want them to be related to this fire thing so that I can relate. I just want to relate. I don't want to see us that we are too horrible or we are a bit better. So every time I want to go to a new place, I just want to relate. Even here in Kenya, I go to other counties. Openly, I just travel to other counties. Oh, so what does this county do? Oh, this county has a modern fire station. Wow, I envy you. Wow, we are doing this and this. So those are the things I really do a lot in my life. I'll say 90% of what I do right now is related to fire <laughs> even right now i'm planning a trip to to nairobi but i'm not going there for a life for leisure i just want to see okay i heard that they they, they received 40 fire engines and we we have you know we don't have any fire engines what did you do yeah our engines are worn out and only one they're never enough to go to a scene before you are even finished with this scene you are going you are being called to another incident and then you can imagine, we only have one fire truck, and then there are three calls at a time. Which one do you attend to first? And then you just receive, you know, you, you just see that, oh, one fire department has received 40 fire engines, and you're like, wow, how did you do this? So I do a lot of travels because I want to relate. I just don't want to wake up someday and say I am done because we are too horrible. Less there are other people who are even more horrible than us. So all the times I just want to relate with how other departments are doing. Well, I love that too because that's what I do on the show. So there are there are countries around the world that do different things better than anyone else. And so rather than beating your chest and saying, you know, Khalifi is the best county on the planet or America is the best country on the planet, you you go to other places and you say, oh, my goodness, you know, for example, your crime is lower than anyone else's. Your schools are the best. You know, your air is the cleanest, whatever it is. What are you doing? And I think that's exactly what you're doing with the fire service. Let me learn from you so that we can then apply it to our fire station, our country, whatever it is. And so... You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to make it up for yourself. You find someone who's doing really well. You have the humility to say, 
okay, yes, you're doing it better than us. Can we can we learn how to do it? And so I think what you're doing with the fire service in Kenya is the same as a lot of countries should do with other countries, which is learn from each other and share the knowledge. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so my family at some point will tell me, hey, can you can you for a minute get out of this fire world? We just want to see you as a daughter. You know, as a sister, we don't want to see you as a firefighter today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, it's really an interesting journey to be in. Yeah, I think uh, like this is what I really needed to do. It really fulfills me and uh, I'm enjoying every bit of it. I could tell. <laughs> Well, Flora, I just want to say thank you so much. People listening, um, I'm sure they would love to reach out. I hope some people listening can can help and contribute and try and get some more equipment to you and your department. Um, where are the best places online to find you, social media or anywhere else? Yeah, first of all, as a county, we have a Facebook page. It is called Kalifi County Fire and Rescue. Brilliant. And then what about yours? And then uh, mine is Flora Cassie on Facebook. Flora Cassie on social media for Florence Castiana on Instagram. And then I have my personal email address, mochetefloor.gmail.com. And then my Kenyan number, 254-0013-8904. Beautiful. Well, and, uh, I just want to say <laughs> thank you. It's been such a great conversation. You know, I mean, we were put together, you know, by chance and... Uh, it's so great for two firefighters to talk that are sitting, you know, in very different parts of the world, but sharing the same passion. You know, I mean, you, your, your desire to serve, which initially you thought was going to be through teaching and ultimately was through firefighting, is the same burning desire as every other public servant around the planet. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. No, I want to thank you because I feel that this is one of my greatest opportunities, one of my most exciting opportunities I've ever had. I feel so, you know, I even feel so sweet of myself today. This is so unique. I never thought that I would one point at a time do this. So I'm really grateful. I don't know if you'll give me some time. Maybe some people will be, will be watching and I will want to appreciate some people who have been with me along this journey. Please. Yeah, yeah please. <laughs> yeah, first my family. Uh, my family really pushes me to do more. Yeah, even though at one point they never wanted me to be, but when they saw my desire and passion, they really saw that this is really my thing. And nowadays, they are really pushing me to do more. I also want to thank um, uh, our training officer and our station officer then. His name is uh, Saul Kahindi. He's the one who um, taught us, you know, to create chances out of every challenges. He's the one who taught us to create opportunities in every mess that we have. So if it were not for him, Probably most of us in this department would have given up. But uh, he, he literally, actually literally pushed us, you know, to confide, to, to, to be confident and to do this job. I also want to thank uh, my American female firefighter friends. I don't know if I would mention my name, Trina, you know, Tina, all of them, Milena, Claudio, Cassie. 
I, some of the names I don't even know how to pronounce. But they <laughs> give me a lot. <laughs> yeah, they give me a lot of hope. You know, they make me feel. You know that they oh they are always there. Every time I reach out, they are always there to support me. So these are the things that really push me to do more. They are the things that I don't want to give up on this profession because I know anytime I'm down, there's somebody out there to pick me up. Doesn't matter how far they are, but they are always there. So to the Triple F group, all of them, they are amazing, beautiful sisters. I love them. And I hope that one day I'm going to meet them in person. We just give them beautiful hugs because they really do support me. So I hope this message is going to reach them because they are really awesome people. And then in my department also, we are being supported by our administrator. He's not in the fire line, but he really, need, he really sees the needs of the, of the fire department. He pushes our things forward, you know, so that we can be heard. Yeah, his name is Elijah Mungaya. Even though he's not a firefighter, but he's trying his best to see that we are comfortable in the department so and to you thank you so much for this amazing opportunity i feel so sweet about myself today very well.